Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, and we'll read verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you could have anything that you asked for, uh, what would it be? I suppose if I gave a, a few moments for the children to reflect on that question, they could come up with a lot of things that they would really like to have. Maybe things that they didn't get for Christmas because they're, they're too expensive, but things that uh, they would really like to possess. Or uh, perhaps many of us would think of, of circumstances that we're in and a situation that's difficult and uh, our desires might go immediately in the direction of a change, a change in our situation, a change in, in relationships, perhaps. In a way, such a question is a test of our, of our spiritual mindedness, a test of our spiritual priorities. Uh, we know what the psalmist, living in the old covenant, desired above everything else. He tells us in Psalm 73, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance, my greatest possession is God forever. How do you suppose the Apostle Paul would answer this question? If you could have whatever you desire, what would it be? Well, he tells us. He tells us while writing from prison. He's writing from prison in this letter. In the letter to Philippians, he's writing uh, from prison. And he tells us that his great passion and pursuit is to know Christ. It's not to be released from prison, Paul. It's not to go on preaching the gospel. It's to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to be conformed to his death. It's not to go on living. No, it doesn't really make that much difference to him whether he lives or dies. He has a preference for the continued service of the church, but that is all subordinate to his great desire to know Christ. How many of us would think, in answer to this question, what is your supreme desire? How many of us could honestly sing more about Jesus, I would know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. I think we all recognize that that is most biblical in answer to this question. 
It's not things that we desire or changes in our circumstances, but spiritual riches that are centered in our relationship with the triune God. These are the most important things. These are the things that that we share with, with a vast a spiritual family. The last time we faced, or we focused rather, on the revelation of the mystery of Christ. And we saw that that mystery of Christ concerns God's great saving purpose for Jews and non-Jews. A saving purpose that centers indeed upon the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now in our text this morning and next week, Lord willing, we see how this mystery of Christ moved him to pray. For this reason I bow my knees, he says in verse 14. It moved him to pray. And his response, even as it's described here, is it's clearly a response of, of adoration and worship. But it's a response of worship with requests that the riches of such grace would be known by all Christians, that they would be known deeply, that they would be known increasingly. In other words, he prays for others, uh, for the very same things that he himself valued and esteemed and aspired to above everything else. And he describes that in these verses before us. And in that description, we also are taught to pray. We're taught to pray for the best things, the most important things, and we're taught to pray for them, as we'll hear in this passage, with great encouragement to believe and to expect to receive them by grace. The knowledge of grace in Christ inspires prayer for more. And we begin by considering how this prayer begins, calling upon the great God whom we worship. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verse 14. I bow my knees. Now this is a response that is prophesied in the Old Testament. It's prophesied, for example, in Isaiah chapter 45, where we read in verse 22 and 23, the Lord says, Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. Again, another passage that uh, speaks of this expansive universal purpose of God. That the message of the gospel should go through all the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. In other words, the proclamation of this message of salvation to all, revealing a saving God, leads people to bow the knees to Him in worship and confession of the gospel of righteousness. And so Paul responds, on our knees... On our knees. That's a biblical posture for prayer. That doesn't mean that's the only way to pray. doesn't mean that it's the only posture for prayer. But it is a biblical posture for prayer. In fact, we read that uh, the Apostle Paul, when he called for the Ephesian elders and spoke to them before he took ship, 
he kneeled and prayed uh, with them all. Quite a picture. Perhaps on the beach before he uh, embarked, they knelt down together and prayed. It's a biblical posture for prayer. It's a posture that we should practice at, a, at times, on occasions. Times in which we ought to indeed express with our own bodies our humility and the adoration of our souls to God. Our postures can assist us. Our postures can hinder that. Posture can express the opposite, right? We don't pray like this in the pew. No, we bow our heads. And hopefully that's an expression of our hearts. And to get on our knees occasionally or regularly. Again, there's no prescription concerning this in Scripture. But to get on our knees deliberately, intentionally, to express, even with our own bodies, that we bow before God in humility and worship. Biblical posture. Every knee shall bow. It says in Philippians, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. That describes people that are moved by grace. If they do so in this life, moved by the knowledge of God's greatness. But the day is coming when every knee shall bow, even if it means moved by the irresistible revelation of God's majesty and power. Even when the Lord Jesus comes to judge, every knee shall bow. This is language of worship, the worship of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses similar language in in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This reminds us of God's eternal fatherhood. There was never a time when he was not the Father Even before all created things, he was the eternal father of his son. It was our Lord Jesus Christ. And even so, it is a reminder by this language of the grace of his fatherhood uh, of us by, by adoption. And again, it's an adoption that is not limited to any race of people. In a sense, that was the case in the Old Covenant. When Paul speaks of the privileges of the Jews in Romans 9, he says, to them pertain the adoption. They had the grace and privilege of being God's son, whom he delivered from Egypt. They had the grace of being heirs of God, those who would inherit the earth. But that inheritance is not limited to them, nor is the privilege of adoption limited to them. The mystery revealed is the oneness of this privilege of grace along with everyone, every other. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus are children of God. There's one vast family of God. Bows to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. The whole family, that even could be rendered every clan a people that are made up of various groups, you might say. Different physical traits, different tones to their skin or hair, variations in their size, variations in their, their facial uh, features, racial characteristics that are stamped upon different peoples of this world. But they all belong to one spiritual race. All those who are united to the Savior 
belong to this common family. It's the race of the redeemed. And there's a vast number of them. There's a vast number already in heaven. There's a lot more now than when Paul wrote. But there's a vast number already in heaven, and there remains a vast number on earth whose numbers are increasing daily as Christ gathers his flock into one fold as they hear his voice. As it says in chapter 4, verse uh, verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. See, this theme of the glorious mystery of Christ and the unity of his body runs through this entire book. And it's essential to our appreciation of the wonder of uh, God's grace here revealed to every Christian. It is said by our Lord Jesus Christ, pray to your Father who is in heaven. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts? How much more will your Father in heaven give the best of gifts, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The great God we worship is foundational to our confidence and expectation of the very best of things that he promises to us. And I just close this first point with reference to the greatest of gifts. And we look secondly at the divine power that we need. Paul describes his prayer there in verse 16 when he says, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. He prayed for the power that the church of Jesus Christ needs. You know that there is a spiritual power at work in every Christian. It's an unearthly uh, power. It is not the kind of power that is shared by the people of this world or by religious folk in general. It is shared by those who are united to Jesus Christ, who have received the Spirit whom he gives. It's that power that's described in chapter 1, verse 19, that power which worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's resurrection power. Ultimately, physical resurrection power. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The Spirit has already given spiritual life to you who were dead in trespasses and sins. You He made alive. Well, that's a new life of regeneration and new birth that is affected by the Holy Spirit. It's a power that is at work within you, we read in verse 20 according to the power that works in us. It's a power that enables weaklings like you and I to stand, to resist the devil, to overcome temptation, to stand fast in the faith. How is that? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. There is a power at work in the life of every Christian so crucial to our understanding of the Christian life. It's not just a matter of the confession of right doctrine. Do you know something of that power? Something of that spiritual power at work in your life. There's a sense in which this can some, in a sense, be a test of the genuineness of repentance. You know, there are a lot of people that, that say, I'm sorry. There are a lot of people that are filled with regret 
and with remorse over their sins. They see the consequences. They feel the effects of them in their life. They're afraid that their life is going down. And they pray, oh God, be merciful to me. Save me and help me. But they get up from their prayer and the first time temptation comes along, they're goner. Or shortly after. And what's the explanation for that? Well, for one thing, their repentance is not genuine. It's not true repentance. It may be a desire to be free of the consequences of their sins. It may be a desire to be free from the circumstances of their lives. They may be filled with remorse. But they haven't come to God with this spirit of surrender. A surrender of their wills to God. They haven't come before God with a willingness to do whatever God says. They haven't come before God renouncing their own ability and strength whatsoever. Oh, they may want to be free from some troubles, but it may be that they just simply prefer other idols. And the result of that is God doesn't hear their prayers because their repentance is not genuine. But when sinners come to God at the end of themselves, at the end of their own resources, with a willingness to do what God says. Oh, then clarity. Then a kind of conviction. And then they rise from their prayer with a new strength. And they're able to fight against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, there is a form of godliness. Paul warns against that. A form of godliness that denies the power. And that's the power of truth to sanctify the heart. It's the power of real change. And that comes only by the indwelling Spirit. Oh, we all need more of the Holy Spirit. But there is this power at work in every Christian life. That's what Paul's praying for. And he's praying, he's praying that these Christians would know more of it. Right? Yes, we need more of it. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for strength in the inner man, strength in our souls. We hear this psalmist in Psalm 38. He says, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Wait upon the Lord. Be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You know, that's also a test of the genuineness of faith, isn't it? I prayed and it didn't work. I remember telling my parents that very thing. I prayed, my prayers don't get any farther than the ceiling. I used those very words. My, my mom reminded me of it years later. But I just wanted to be free from some troubles. And when I called upon the Lord with a realization of my need and with a will to surrender to Him, well, God heard. He delivered me from the pit. That's the testimony of the Christian life. It's often an ongoing testimony as we go through varied experiences of struggle with sin. And we find that those sins that we've been justifying, those sins that we've been rationalizing, those sins that we have been excusing, have in fact been keeping God from us. And that's a big explanation why we lack joy. And why we lack the power to change. Because we don't want to give up our idols. And God will not be mocked. 
power. This is not a matter of feeling invincible. It's not a matter of living without failures and troubles and struggles. It's not a matter of accomplishing great feats. In fact, it often takes the form of patience and suffering. It takes the form of endurance of faith. When feeling weak, that same psalm that I quoted, Psalm 138, he says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. He's in the midst of struggle. He's facing trouble. But he persists in clinging to God with confidence that God will be his help. That's spiritual strength in the inner man. Though the outward man perish, yet the inner man is renewed day by day while we look at unseen things. This strength is not of ourselves, but through the Spirit. He is the power we need, the power that works in us. Verse 20. And Paul, by sharing his prayers with the church, is saying, brothers and sisters, believe this. Believe in this. Believe in this divine person and help. There is no shortage with God. He prays that according to the riches of His glory, we might be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man. Paul asks for this gift of spiritual might with a conviction of an abundant supply that God is willing to give. We often have not because we ask not. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. Children, pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your hearts. You say, well, I hardly know what that means. I hardly know what the answer to that prayer would look like. That's okay. You keep praying for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart because it's not a matter of what it looks like and what will happen. It's a matter of who. It's this divine person that God promises to give to us as we call upon Him in our need. Believing, believing, yes, that the Holy Spirit is real and that He works within and he is able to strengthen us. And if we don't feel that right away, we keep praying. That's what Paul is teaching us. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those only who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. Sound familiar? It's a Heidelberg Catechism. Why is prayer necessary? Because God gives His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually ask Him and thank Him. The power that we need. And then thirdly, the precious blessing we seek. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now this is not a list in the sense that Strengthened with might in this, in the inner man. And then on a totally different subject, something else that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. No, these things are intimately, inseparably create, uh, united. They're joined together. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. This, brothers and sisters, is at the heart of spiritual life and power. This is the great work of Christ. 
or the, of the Holy Spirit to take the things of Christ and to make them known. In chapter 1, Paul prayed for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. It's the great work of the Spirit. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that the, that the glory of God shines in our hearts in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that connection, we note also that this language of Christ in your heart is a biblical expression. It's not describing a warm, tingly feeling or uh, a vision of light or some kind of ecstatic feeling. That doesn't mean that there are no feelings or effects in terms of uh, our our total person. We don't want to equate this with some kind of vision or some kind of a uh, ecstasy. It does, however, point to a relationship with the Savior, which is personal and heartfelt. John Calvin, again, one whom many of us, uh, without knowing him, might think of him as this kind of uh, dry-as-dust theologian. He says on this point, he says, It is not enough, then, to have some vague knowledge of Christ or to be able to talk a lot about him. But he must have his seat in our hearts, within, so that we are sincerely joined to him and with true affection. Christ in our hearts through faith. Again, that's not simply a, a filler here. It's important for our understanding. That means that our minds and our thoughts and our memories are all active in, in this great blessing of Christ dwelling in us. In fact, you look at a parallel passage in Colossians, uh, and, and, uh, Paul prays that the word of Christ may dwell in you richly. And uh, we must understand that Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith and the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts, Richard, they're not, they're not separate, uh, distinct things. Christ dwells in our hearts as we, as we believe in his promises, as we think of them, as we learn more of the riches of God's grace and truth through the preaching of the gospel, through sacraments, through Bible study, through reading the Bible personally, reading the Bible in our families, memorizing our favorite passages, not simply to learn the words, but to, to, to mumble them, to repeat them to ourselves and find thereby fellowship with the Lord. Seek this blessing by the deliberate exercise of faith. We pray for it. God answers our prayer by, by helping us to, to look to Jesus, right? That's how the writer to the Hebrews describes the life of faith. To run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, with our, with our hearts and minds constantly reverting to the Lord Jesus, constantly uh, turning our focus upon him as he is revealed to us in his word by the Holy Spirit. Believe that he is near. Call upon him as one who is near. Cherish his promises in your hearts and in your memory. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. Now, the interesting thing, and reflecting on this, it says, when he says, Abide in me, well, yeah, we understand that that's something that we're called to do. We are called to abide in him actively by living by faith. But joined with that is 
and I in you. In other words, it sounds like the command is that Christ should abide in us. And we might think, well, that's His activity. we got to concern ourselves with abiding in Him, but how can we make Him abide in us? How is that a command that we fulfill? Well, we need to see the relationship between abiding in Him and He abiding in us. And He, he spells it out for us. In a few verses later, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be granted to you. In other words, the way Christ abides in our hearts is by his words abiding in our memories, in our affections, in our faith. So that we believe it and receive it in the love of it. And in that way, Christ himself dwells in us increasingly more and more. If you could have anything, what would it be? Well, here, brothers and sisters, is a prayer for the most blessed gifts. And we ought to have no doubt that this is a prayer that is according to God's will. We know that this is what God is pleased to give. And that should encourage our persistence in prayer and expectation of His grace. That often is measured or often is observed and experienced in hindsight and in reflection as this growth in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it may, it may take leaps and bounds at times. There may be something that takes place, something that you heard, some experience that, that uh, brings you to advance in this spiritual life and deepen your knowledge of Christ. But, but very often this growth takes place gradually, under the ordinary means of grace, through the ways that God has appointed to carry on his work in us. And then you may find, as you look back, and you're able to observe that, yes, the Lord Jesus is more precious to you. He is more central to your faith. You take greater delight in his word. You you have greater stamina in reading the scriptures. Your prayers maybe are a bit longer. Not out of a sense of duty, but you are growing in your love for this Savior. That's the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. Believe it. Believe that. Pray for it. Expect his blessing. And if you know nothing about it, this passage teaches you how to begin to pray. To call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To pray that he would work in your heart by his Spirit. True repentance. That he would give you a clear understanding of the gospel that your heart might be changed and transformed by His power. And never quit praying until you know that you're reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He who comes to Christ in this way will never be cast out. Amen.